Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Monday, it was a private matter. Then on Tuesday, said he owned no shares. And then on Thursday, he said he did though. And then Saturday, he said it's not a great week. And he submitted tax returns on Sunday. Doesn't, doesn't really work, does it? <sighs> Hello, and welcome to another partly political broadcast. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and the only time I've ever had any money offshore is when I accidentally dropped £2.36 off the side of a P&O ferry to Cali in 1988. And yeah, I'm still a bit sad about it. On this week's show, Paul Bernal talks to me about why the Investigatory Powers Bill is both scary and all a bit rubbish, although nobody ever says why investigatory is such a hard word to say in the first place. And of course, I'm going to be looking into all the panamanium that's been happening in the world of tax avoidance. Panamanium. Get it? Sorry. Before we kick all that off, though, um, thanks again for listening to the show. We've had quite a big boost in listeners over the last two weeks, which is really great, Uh, including, I understand, one listener in New Zealand. Amazing. Uh, I'm guessing they listen in to confirm all their suspicions that it really is a good idea living that far away from the UK after all. I'm going to try and stick more world politics into this show soon so any of you non-UK listeners can realise that actually you're not safe anywhere and we should probably all go live on the moon. I've also managed to gain a Parpol Bro helper, or a Parpol Bro, I guess you could call him, uh, Matthew Hoss. Uh, he's very kindly agreed to help me source guests and do other non-exciting admin in the future, which is a huge help and very kind of him indeed. Please do keep spreading the word about this show and please, please, please give us a review on iTunes. It doesn't have to be a written one. You can just click the little stars on the page. Uh, It really, really does help promote the show. And it also makes up for all the gold stars I didn't get at school for my pasta collages that I still have rejection issues about. Uh, That is not true. I got loads of stars for those pasta collages. They were really, really good. What I've been enjoying about doing all these podcasts is that I've been learning a lot of things that I previously had absolutely no idea about, and and not just from the interviews that I've been doing for this show. Um, For example, right, to get ideas to the show, I've been going to loads of panels and talks, and in the last few weeks, I've attended a few discussions held at Foyle's Bookshop in London, all leading up to the London mayoral elections, and put together by Compass Office, who seem like a really excellent group. 
They've all been really, really interesting, uh, and I've really enjoyed sitting with my girlfriend trying to guess which other members of the audience are genuinely interested and who's just turned up thinking that it's a mini question time and they can just shout their opinion that absolutely no one has paid to hear or wants to. Uh, so far, we have managed to get them all right and have worked out it's mostly down to combinations of hats and badges. Anyway, uh, the last panel was with George Monbiot, Pfizer Shaheen, from, uh, who is the director of Class Think Tank, and Cheeto Dunn from Global Witness, who are a NGO who are clamping down on corruption and tax havens and stuff like that. So very, very relevant at the moment and worth checking out. And I'm not going to repeat the whole event, obviously, because it was like an hour and a half long, but a very interesting bit was a, a, a theme that came up several times about neoliberalism being a completely broken system but there isn't a system to replace it with yet. And so we're stuck in this awful society that's all about privatisation and giving power to companies over people. Uh, George Monbiot really succinctly described neoliberalism. Um, I'm probably going to say this wrong because I didn't write it down. But he said uh, that it's believing that all areas of life are a competition and everything you do in life is a competition, businesses, healthcare, everything. And anything that gets in the way of that competition or opposes that ideal is a threat to freedom. So, uh, your homework for next week's show is what can we replace neoliberalism with, hey guys? And can ice cream be its currency? Uh, No, I'm only joking. Um, What the panel did do, though, is help me understand the economic philosophy. And if I can, I'm going to try and get more interviewees on this podcast who can maybe talk about how we go about progressing beyond it. And if there are any possibilities of fixing things so we don't just end up with another banking crisis like we did in 2008. Um, You know, sort of clever stuff like that. I mean, basically, I reckon by episode 30, I should have fixed absolutely everything ever. uh, And you can thank me later. Right, that is enough of that. Uh, We've got a very long interview on today's show. um, So it's not today's. You might be listening this another day, which I suppose would still be today for you. So we've got a long interview on today's show uh, that I didn't really want to cut much of it out. You know, it's got full of interesting stuff. And so I decided to put the entire interview on and therefore do a lot less stuff myself this week. So... Without any further ado, or in fact any ado, uh, in fact less ado right now, down with this ado, let us ban ado, go. After mentioning the investigatory powers bill in episode 9, and saying that it would probably get passed in Parliament, it did. It's almost like I'm a podcast Nostradamus. Podstradamus. Or, it's more like our political system is highly predictable. Or, 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 maybe they're just listening into everything that I do. No, no, probably still the middle one. Um, Anyway, with various companies saying that the cost of the IP bill will now be a lot higher than predicted, and privacy paying a massive part in the Panama Papers scandal, I thought this week I would get someone professional to explain all the problems with the bill, and why in real life Tom Hiddleston's night manager would actually just spend a lot of time being bewildered as to how many people actually bother to use LinkedIn. So, our expert this week is University of East Anglia law lecturer Paul Burnell, who specialises in human rights and privacy. Paul has written a book called Internet Privacy Rights and writes a blog all about all sorts of legal issues online and otherwise, so I thought he was the perfect person to speak to, although he did pass on his Skype username all a little too easily for my liking. I should say uh, I did this interview a week ago, so we didn't talk about the Panama Papers as it has only just happened, uh, or the recent moves against the bill by the Law Society of Scotland. There is also, annoyingly, some echo on this and an occasional dodgy line and at one point a noise that sounds a little bit like a comedy kazoo. Look out for that. Dodgy internet line? While we're talking about MI5 spying at people online? Hmm, coincidence? Yeah, probably. Here's Paul. 
So the investigative powers bill was uh, was passed in the Commons a couple of weeks ago. How worried should we all be about this? Is it just going to be a few weeks before the government know every single thing that we do, uh, like in like in Minority Report or other dystopian films? Should we all be terrified? Um, I I wouldn't say we should be terrified. We should be a little bit alarmed that they want to know everything about us and that they've kind of given themselves the legal powers to be able to do so. But we should be slightly less alarmed because they're, frankly, not um, capable of doing what they want to do. I mean, really, the, the, the biggest problem we have with this law is that um, it's trying to do stuff that really is not likely to, to be possible. It hasn't been passed yet. Um, it's, been, it's passed its second reading, which means there are several more steps in the process to go. But the way they're acting right now, it looks like they're going to try and force it through in pretty much exactly the same form as they have it now, which should alarm us because it should alarm us about what they're intending to do and it, that they're not willing to listen to people who say, you know, there are problems with this, there are unforeseen consequences and there are risks added adding, added to all of us um, as a result of this. I mean, the bill will probably make us less secure rather than more secure. It will probably make our um, the price we have to pay for internet connections go up, and nobody wants to pay more money uh, for, for anything. And it will add a few extra risks in terms of our vulnerability to hackers and scams and, and, and things like that. It won't, in its current form, appreciably um, help us against any of the things they go on about, terrorism, paedophiles, um, things like that. Um, but it will potentially um, put a whole load of data about us out there that can add to our risks. So so the way you explained it there, it doesn't sound like it has any plus points at all. If it's going to uh, increase costs of the internet and it's not going to make us more secure and it's going to invade our privacy, why are they doing this? Well, I, I think there are, there are a, a number of different answers to that. One is that legally they kind of have to do this if they want to be able to do they're doing already because the law that we have in place at the moment is called the um, data retention and investigatory powers act um, which was passed in a great big rush um, in 2014 has what we call a sunset clause that is it stops working at the end of 2016 so they have a they have a a, an obligation to put a law in place or to stop doing the 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 kind of spying stuff they do now what's important to understand is that is that a lot of what they do is actually useful a lot of what they do, the, the communications data they, they can gather, does actually help. But the way they put their, their, they're trying to deal with it in law, they're also going to ask, try to do a whole lot of stuff that they think will help, but actually is almost certain not to be able to help. There are things that they can do that, be, that are really useful and that they do do that are really useful, but there's also a whole load of stuff that they do that is not useful and just adds... Um, to the to the risk, and I, I, I think there are a couple of things that, that can can should give us a clue to this. If we look at, at terrorism, for example, and we're, we're all currently thinking about terrorism because of the um, events in Brussels very recently, the people who were um, who perpetrated the Brussels attacks, just like the people who perpetrated. The, 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 the Paris attacks before them and the Charlie Hebdo shooting before them and the Boston bombing and the murder of, of drummer Lee Rigby in Woolwich and the siege in Sydney and so on. These were all people who were already known to the authorities. And if we want to stop events like 
that, what we need to be better at doing is following the activities of the people we've already identified, not gathering massive data about everybody in the vague idea that we might find somebody who we haven't identified yet. We can't follow the people who we've already identified. Why should we be spending all our resources on people we haven't yet identified? So, I mean, that's that's one of the things that the the existing stuff should 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 be focused on more rather than trying to to, to develop the the kind of mass communication stuff that is really what they're trying to do. I think that the there are a couple of, of plus sides that do need mentioning. There is at least an attempt to give some degree of extra kind of warranting, extra authority. They call it a double lock, effectively that uh, uh, some specialist judges get to look at the warrants after um, they, uh, before they're, fu- they're, they're fully in action. Um, so rather than as it is at the moment, Theresa May gets to sign them and nobody else looks at them, basically. Right. So that is an extra degree of, 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 of authorization. Um, but... The extent to which it'll actually work is very difficult to tell. It may just look like a, a kind of rubber stamp. And, and this is one of the things that, that the opponents of the bill want to do is to make it work better. But even having it as it is is, a, is an improvement over, we've, uh, over what we've got. Right. So I wouldn't say there, there are no upsides. But right now, uh, from the perspective of, of, of most of the people who, are, who study this area, the downsides are significantly larger than the upsides of the bill. Right. I'm very concerned by the fact that they, they want to collect, is it internet connection records? I believe that's what they're calling it, isn't it? Where they, they want yes. to collect records of everyone, which I part of me worries will just be immensely boring. I mean, I spend, they're just, if they were to pull stuff off my computer, they'd find Twitter, 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 and then I've Googled myself a few times, and then more Twitter, you know, and having to wade through pages of that would be very dull. Um, but I've... I've seen your blogs and you're saying that there would be problems getting service providers to actually collect internet connection records in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest problems is that nobody really knows what internet connection records are supposed to look like. Um, the the analogy that they made right at the beginning was that they would be like an itemized phone bill for the internet. So they would tell you what you've connected to and when and things like that. And I think that betrays the uh, the underlying mindset here. They remember how it used to work when they when people just used telephones to communicate, and they're trying to apply the same logic to the internet. But the same logic doesn't work on the internet. We don't communicate in that way. When do I connect to Twitter? Well, frankly, I'm always connected to Twitter. So the internet connection record, which says when you connect to a service, would just say um, I connected to Twitter. I mean, probably I'm I'm off Twitter. Um, a couple of hours every fortnight, something like that, when, <laughs> when my systems fail. But I don't disconnect at the end of the evening, and I I, I just leave my system, my system running. And that's the same for, for most of the main ways that people communicate now. People use their mobile phones. They don't have a clue what services are connected at any moment on their phones. They don't shut down and sign off Twitter and Facebook and, and all these other things every time they want to stop using them and then sign in again and, and so on when they want to use them again. They just leave them running in the background. And often that's automatic. So um, the idea of the internet connection record was supposed to give them the, the information they used to get from um, itemized phone bills, but for the internet. So they know you'd send them this message to somebody and this thing to somebody else. It just won't do that. And 
if they try to, to define it in a way that does do that, then they get into an, an awful mess. If, if you go to any of the more, any of the, the modern systems that we have, any of the, the social networks and so on, we communicate even using a single system in a, in, in a dozen different ways. You send messages, you do, do tweets directly to people, you do a general tweet, you follow a hashtag, you do all these different things. How are we going to say which one of those counts as a connection? And I, I, they haven't really thought that through at all. And when you do want to communicate, and I remember having massive, and this shows some of my kind of geekishness, <laughs> massive um, political conversations on the commentary section of the Internet Movie um, database where we were discussion, discussing Mel Gibson's appalling film, The Passion of the Christ, <laughs> which basically some of us went on there to say what a, what a, a pile of dross that was and ended up talking about um, politics. Now, how are they going to tell that's where this, these conversations are happening? Are they going to look at everywhere? You get conversations on the review sections of products on Amazon. Um, almost anywhere on the internet you can have a conversation. So uh, trying to monitor this is, 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 is I mean, it, it, it's frankly pointless. But can I, can I pull you back to one of the things you said, that the people are going to be very bored by this. Hmm. They're going to be more than bored. It's going to be totally impossible. So the only way to do it is rather than having people look at it, they'll be doing some kind of automated algorithmic analysis. They'll right. be running the processes over it because people would get bored. And the trouble is those algorithms are naturally going to pull up all kinds of false positives. That is, they look for something, they'll find something that looks like that but really isn't that. Uh, and they're going to miss an, a, a large number of things that they would be looking for because they'll be not using complicated um, computerized encryption, but just talking obliquely. I mean, anyone who's got a British sense of humor knows any word can mean about half a dozen <laughs> things, depending on the intonation. It's, I mean, it's, it's not a, if I say something's quite nice, what do I mean? Am I, do I mean it's absolutely wonderful, a piece of complete dross or whatever? It depends on the context and the situation. And algorithms find that incredibly difficult to do. So, because okay, we've already seen this with, uh, I mean, I know that wasn't algorithms, but when that guy tweeted about the Robin Hood airport as a, yeah, exactly. a joke, which admittedly might not be the best of jokes to put online, but it still <clears throat> was a joke and that was taken quite seriously and he was arrested. So if that's left to algorithms to pick up every time someone puts a bomb emoji or something, that could be quite concerning. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and there are plenty of other cases like that. And that's the problem with gathering all this data in this way is that it, it will naturally bring out a whole load of, of, of false results. And the problem with this sort of thing is that the false results then have significant consequences because um, it will then put you on some kind of a list that then means you're monitored more closely or that your content is analyzed and so on. And all kinds of little false assumptions can be made that build up to produce something that's, um, it, it may not matter in terms of national security, but it matters a hell of a lot to the person who gets gets caught up in it. Mm. And that's, that's uh, I mean, it's one of the, the many, many issues we have with this kind of thing. And I can see why they want to do it, but I can see all kinds of disasters coming from it. And I can also see it's going to be really hard to make it actually do anything valuable. And, and this is where the, is, the interesting issue with the, the, the Danish experience, because they're the only people who've done anything similar to this. They call it session logging rather than internet right. connection records, but it's fairly similar. And after um, uh, seven years of trying, they found they'd only used it peripherally in a single case. 
and they they abandoned it. They then um, decided they tr- they'd work out a better way of doing it, and they try they they tried again. They did a an independent feasibility study on this new idea done by by some uh, management consultants, who said that it, the costs would now go up by ten uh, ten times for what it previously was, which made it so totally disproportionately. I mean, even if it worked as they'd like it to, the cost was immense. Yeah. And they've abandoned it again um, because it simply isn't going to work. And, and I have a feeling that that's the l- most likely outcome here. We have this proposal in here. We have this idea of Internet connections. They'll spend two or three years trying to work with Internet service providers to find a way to do it. They will spend hundreds of millions of pounds on this. And then in a few years, they'll realize it's pointless and abandon it. And we will have wasted a huge amount of time. And, and this is, gets back to what I said right at the beginning, that they're trying to do stuff that really isn't going to work. And the, and the result is they're not trying to do, trying to look more um, creatively at how they could work it. And, and, and this is something I've written about a, a couple of times. But I, I think the, the, the way I would describe it is they've got in their head what they think the solution is. And they ask for that solution rather than asking the people who actually know, in this case, the, 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 the internet industry, how can we solve the underlying problem? How can we find terrorists on the internet? Rather than say, find terrorists on the internet, they say, how can you create something that works like a, an itemized phone bill? And they should be asking the deeper questions and coming up with more, um, with, 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 with more practical and modern solutions rather than old solutions, kind of trying to shoehorn the old solutions into the new system where they really don't work. And I, and I, I think uh, this is the biggest problem. They're, they're doing stuff that's not going to work. It's going to have unforeseen consequences, like people being caught up who shouldn't be. It's not going to solve their problem, and it's going to become more and more out of date um, as um, the technology and the way we use it develops. Yep, this is, I mean, something that very much strikes me with this case, as it does with a number of the things that the government do, it does feel like they don't really understand the internet and that they're trying to make policies about it without fully realising what they'll mean. I mean, the the, uh, the element of the uh, the IP bill about encryption, uh, where they want to introduce a security backdoor. Now, I, I don't understand computing encryption at all, but that does strike me that if you just make another another way for people to break into a system, then hackers will exploit that and that makes it less secure. Isn't that right? It's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's quite straightforward, and it's why Apple was fighting the FBI so, so um, strongly, because they know that the entire, pretty much the entire technology industry in the U.S. got behind Apple on this, because they understand this. There is no such thing as a, as a back door that can detect whether somebody going into it is a good guy or a bad guy. Apart from the fact that it's very hard to detect who's a good guy and who is a bad guy. You create a backdoor, somebody can go into it. You create a weakness in a system, somebody will exploit it. I mean, um, let me give you an example. This is from, from Mexico. Um, they, there, was a, there was a spate of kidnappings of um, families of members of parliament in, in, in Mexico. So they introduced a new law allowing the police to have immediate access the, the geolocation data, that is the, effectively where you are based on your mobile phone uh, without any process so that people could um, f- 
if families were kidnapped, you could find them immediately by the mobile mobile phone. And the problem is that the Mexican police have a certain degree of, um, to put it politely, collusion with the drugs cartels. So you give the police the opportunity to find um, these people. You also give the drugs cartels the <sighs> capability of finding people, and and the result is a disaster. And that's that's naturally the case. The the uh, serious hackers are likely to be much better at this than our government people are. And if we create something that we think the government can use, you can be pretty sure that the serious criminals and the foreign intelligence agencies and um, so on and so forth will all say, you know, they must be creating this backdoor. Let's find it. Let's exploit it. And, and, and the result is pretty obvious unfortunately vulnerability damage yeah it seems it seems incredibly naive to me uh it, it's i mean i mean I, i'm I, part of the that the whole bill from my limited understanding does firstly seem naive but also i i understand that you're sort of saying that they there are things that they've been doing that already work but in terms of as you mentioned earlier about being able to bypass the judiciary uh service element of it um yeah. I, I read recently that we're the only member state of the Five Eyes Alliance, which I have to say I didn't even know about the Five Eyes Alliance, which was worrying enough. Um, yep. But that we're the only we'd be the only member state of that that would be allowed to to bypass judicial oversight. So why why do the UK want to have more surveillance than say the US or Australia or any of the other countries? Well, I, I mean, I would say I don't think that last thing is entirely true because the New Zealanders have have a new system which um, they uh, that actually allows pretty much the same as we do to to avoid the judicial thing for in certain right. situations. Now, again, that's a, only a very recent thing, so it's 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 still not got got very um, broad coverage. But of course, New Zealand is also very much the the smallest. Of the members of the, the 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 five eyes, so so I don't. I mean, I think there there is there is one thing to say. Um, we do have a tradition in this country of not having judicial oversight of this kind of thing. So you're not just competing with with kind of logic. You're competing with um, a kind of history and tradition that we have here. And and, and in in the UK, history and tradition has. Uh, um, a great deal of of, of power. There's, it's it's very hard to to, to overcome it. Um, but it's also, I think, we need to be a little bit careful about placing too much trust in judicial oversight anyway. Because um, judge, if, if we think that the politicians don't understand the internet, do we really think that the judges understand the internet either? And I, I, I think we can imagine that giving judicial oversight gives us more protection than it than it does. It does give some some protection. And with the, with the right judges, it certainly could do. In this case, I'm not sure we'd get the right judges because the system seems to effectively allow the government to kind of cherry pick which judges they have on their uh, on on their um, on their books to do this because it won't be all judges; it'll just be those who are considered appropriate for it. Sure. Um, so sometimes more oversight actually doesn't give more protection; it just gives more appearance of protection, and that's a that's a kind of can, can lull us into a false sense of security in a way and, and we need to be what's what's better is if we have systems that that don't actually allow the the um intrusion in the first place and that's uh, that's a more complicated issue really to how how we how we do that um but in some ways 
we in the UK have the greatest level of trust in our um, intelligence services of any of the any of the the five eyes, and that's, I mean, you could almost call it James Bond syndrome that that our secret agents are largely seen as heroes, whereas uh, the CIA and the FBI are very often seen as as um, bad guys. Right. And, uh, I mean, if we look at our at the kind of the movie tradition, the CIA uh, wouldn't generally be considered to be the be portrayed positively. Mm. Whereas the, the, the whereas you watch Spooks and you watch James Bond, it's largely that the, that they're they're a lot of the uh, are the good guys, and partly that's historical. Partly it's it's because um, in the U.S. there's a much bigger anti-government feeling generally. Uh, kind of from the very beginning of the U.S. There, there's been that, and uh, I think we still haven't ever lived under under um, any kind of seriously oppressive government. So we don't have the sense that that I think anyone who has lived in in that sort of a place has that it's important to to, to properly monitor and limit um, government powers. And, and I, I've spent a lot of time with Eastern Europeans. I'm married to, a, to someone from Romania. Um, and they have a very different attitude towards their governments because of the experience they've, they've had with these kinds of things. We're, we, we haven't. We, we still generally trust our, um, our authorities. And it's nice that we trust them. And I think most of them work very well. But you've got to have a backup in case things go wrong, and you've got to be willing to um, understand that things can go wrong. Sure. Is, is that? I mean, do you think um, it's really interesting you say? It. I wonder if that's why uh, when when Edward Snowden uh, sort of revealed that the NSA had been spying on people and that it it felt like it rocked America a lot more than it rocked the UK. I, I could be wrong with that, but people that I know just kind of went, "Oh, things are terrible in America," and didn't really consider that that's happening here as well it was it was quite odd yeah no I, I think i think i think i think that's exactly right and it is it is it's it's odd in one way but it does fit the the pattern we have of 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 trusting now the, i mean in a way it works the opposite way in 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 relation to corporate surveillance that we're much more wary of um, Google and Facebook than the Americans are, who basically will trust them with pretty much anything. They're, and and I and I, there's it, it's kind of a historical and, and and political thing. But even now, there's a sense that that um, we still trust our government. And I'm I'm fully expecting the the um, investigatory powers bill to be passed largely as it is, even though it's not a not in any way. Um, how can I put this politely? It's not fit to be passed, really. Um, right. it, it, it will be. And people like me who say it's a bad thing will be just largely treated as as kind of um, not exactly conspiracy theorists. I think it's gone a little bit beyond that now. But certainly people who are a little bit wor- too, too worried, them, the, they, who, 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 are, who are worried about kind of principle and they should be accepting the kind of pragmatic idea that we should actually trust our, our, our authorities more. And I, I think it's a... I, I, I mean, I watched it very closely after it, and I, I wasn't surprised that we were less... Um, actively upset about it over here we do we we trust our our authorities and they what they would say is yes you yes of course we trust our authorities why what what 
reason do we have not to trust our authorities? Our authorities have never done anything seriously bad. Now, I think this is where other things come in that we should be watching, and, and, and maybe this is something you could talk to somebody about it in, in, a, in a future podcast, but the um, spy cops story, which is currently being investigated by um, Lord Justice Pitchford in the Pitchford Inquiry, this is, this is the, the um, undercover policing that included, um, particularly of environmental activists, included um, policemen having long-term relationships even having children with activists while behaving as uh, while pretending to be somebody that they're that they're not now if people see that and don't understand why it's incredibly and seriously wrong and don't understand that it's actually our authorities who allowed it and supported it and are still trying to um cover it up to a certain degree, that we have a decision coming soon about whether the inquiry will be held fully in public or whether certain bits will be done, done in secret. I, I think we should be more alert to the fact that our authorities, though they are generally good, do not always behave well, and that actually it's the bad stuff we need to be, to be concerned about. Back to Paul in a minute, but first... Up until a week ago, all I knew about Panama was their tasty choice in hats. But thanks to a data leak of 11.5 million files, we all now know that it wasn't just their heads that they were keeping shady over there. Instead, it is home to the world's fourth biggest offshore firm, Mossack Fonseca, who, as well as having a name that sounds like they'll be a featured bounty hunter in the next Star Wars film, have also advised a large amount of rich people on how to exploit secretive tax regimes. 143 politicians are named in these files, including some of Putin's colleagues, which is odd, as we all thought they'd be so trustworthy, am I right? And the now former Icelandic Prime Minister. Sigmund David Gunlausen resigned last week after the Panama Papers revealed his shares in offshore companies and creditors to failed Icelandic banks that he hadn't revealed when he entered Parliament. The thing is, Gunlausen was a member of the same party who were in government in 2008 and pretty much caused the crash at the time. And then after getting rid of them in a rush election in 2009, the Icelandic public voted them back in in 2013. I believe that Iceland's version of the saying is, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, is because we have a voting electorate that is far, far too forgiving. Not that we're much better in the UK. As the data leaks revelation about the UK Prime Minister's family have all but distracted the public from the real problem that is offshore tax havens. Evidence shows that David Cameron's father owned an offshore investment fund that avoided ever paying tax in the UK by getting people in the Bahamas to sign paperwork. And I'm not sure how they did that. I mean, excuse me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you mind popping your name down there so a very rich man whose ancestors probably enslaved yours can avoid helping people in their own country as well? I mean, one thing I would take away from this leak story is it seems Bahamians will sign absolutely anything and we should probably send a ton of chuggers there immediately. So, this has prompted Cameron to do a lot more backtracking over the last week than MC Cat does in that song with Paula Abdul. Firstly, the whole matter was private on Monday, like, you know, how the investigative powers bill he's backing means nothing you do ever will be. Then he said on Tuesday and Wednesday that him or his family hadn't benefited at all from his father's offshore fund. Then Cameron said on the Thursday that he did, but he wouldn't in the future, before then admitting on Saturday that it hadn't been a good week. Which is probably the first time ever that David Cameron has said what the public have been thinking every week since May 2010. Since then, there's also been revelations that the Prime Minister avoided paying inheritance tax, and then he released his tax return summary, which aside from being as boring a read as Adrian Charles's list of favourite car parks, doesn't show anything untoward. Though it also doesn't have any evidence that there aren't further offshore discretionary trusts that he or his family might gain from in the future, because it would only have that on his tax return summary if he had told the tax people about it in the first place. Little bit of a problem. And actually, all the real problem with all of this is that there isn't really one. Well, not legally anyway. I mean, all of this is tax avoidance, which is entirely fine in our current tax system. And in fact, Cameron's tax returns show that he actually paid more tax from 2011 to 2014 than he was legally obliged to. And all him printing his tax returns has done is prompted tons of other MPs to agree to release their tax returns or, like Nigel Farage, completely refuse to. Although I suppose he's not an MP, is he? I also sort of guess that Nigel Farage just hopes we think that his idea of money from offshore accounts is just money coming over here avoiding helping our country. Although somehow I'm not sure that's actually what he thinks or what we'd find on his tax return. George Osborne revealed his tax returns, showing that somehow he'd only got £3 in interest from his bank on an income of nearly £200,000, which, judging by how he's managed the country's finances so far, sounds about right, I guess. Otherwise, as it was a summary, we couldn't actually tell how much George had earned from lizard royalty fees or what was stolen from children's dreams. Boris Johnson's tax returns show that he earns about as much money as you'd expect a man that ruins that many things would need to in order to survive. And Jeremy Corbyn's tax returns were presented in full, photocopied paper form with illegible writing, and it turned out he'd been fined £100 for getting them in late. Which is how he seems to do everything, isn't it? You know, only realising something is really important and dealing with it several days afterwards when it's no longer relevant. So, while there's nothing legally wrong with all of this tax avoidance, there is a massive moral issue. In that, tax avoidance has become completely normal in wealthy circles. In his speech in the Commons on Monday, David Cameron referred to a leading tax lawyer saying that what his father did was a perfectly normal type of collective investment fund. Dave then went on to say that trade unions, the BBC and Islington Council all have offshore investment funds too, which is a really odd way of defending them, isn't it? It's like going, hey, other people do bad stuff as well. It's sort of like the John Lennon imagine argument about being a dreamer, but for arseholes. 
But the thing is, Cameron is sort of also right. You know, even though he's called Jimmy Carr morally wrong for avoiding tax and not any of his jokes, which seem misguided. George Osborne has also said that tax avoidance was morally repugnant. But the fact is, they all do it. We know Osborne's father's company's avoided tax, albeit through legal methods, and all you need to do is search online for tax avoidance, though probably not through Google, eh? And you'll see politicians across the board have done it. All the way from Thatcher's £12 million mansion that was owned by a British Virgin Islands company, to Ken Livingston funnelling £238,000 through tax avoidance schemes in 2011. And yes, there is something really unsettling about hearing Ken Livingston and funnelling in the same sentence. And none of this is even touching on corporate tax avoidance. The Prime Minister said that the government are doing more now to tackle tax avoidance than ever before, which if you listen to my interview with Joyland Morn in episode 8, you'll hear that that's true. But they've also cut taxes for the rich, meaning they have even less tax to avoid in the first place. And they've cut taxes for the lowest paid workers too, so even less tax money overall is going back into the system. Back in 2013, the EU had a drive to force banks to reveal all the beneficiaries of offshore trust funds in the hope that it would tackle secretive tax evasion. And David Cameron personally intervened to make sure that this didn't happen. Sending a letter that said, It is clearly important we recognise the difference between companies and trusts. I presume that the difference is that you can't trust companies and David Cameron probably has company with trusts. The current HMRC chief was also a partner at the law firm that acted for Cameron's father's offshore fund. It seems all so normal for the political elite to avoid paying tax, you kind of wonder if they spent their entire childhood repeatedly biting hands that fed them. Also, going back to episode 8 again, I joked on that that no one likes paying taxes, which I was rightly pulled up on by some of you lot on Twitter. And I should say that I do like paying my taxes in full, I just hate that I have to read hundreds of receipts and type them all into an Excel file until my brain hurts. But I'm proud of paying towards services that I need. If we have a government that doesn't uphold the idea that the people pay into a working system for everyone, then that will just lead to more privatisation as services have less funding and need to be bought out, and more inequality as only people with money can afford to use those services. I joked in my last stand-up show that the way to fix tax avoidance is to make sure people who do it can't use anything paid for by tax. In fact, here's the bit. I came up with a really... I think it's a good solution for tax avoidance. You might not go with me at first, but I think this is what we should do, right? I think to stop tax avoidance in the UK, we should make tax avoidance completely and utterly legal, right? I know you weren't expecting that. Completely legal, right? And I know it's legal. There's loopholes. Let's get rid of that. Let's just say, hey, you want to avoid taxes? Fucking go for it. You avoid all the tax you like. But if you do it, you can't pay for it. Yeah, sorry, you can't use anything that's paid for by taxes. Nothing. So you can't use any pavements, or any roads, or any street lighting, or any parks, or any hospitals. And you'd know where these people live, because they'd be in a massive fucking house at the end of a shitty pothole-covered road that at night time would be completely dark, right? And that would make it quite easy to burgle or set fire to. And then watching those people call the emergency services would be amazing. Hello, is that the fire brigade? Oh, yes, yes it is. Um, well, we've just checked your address, and I'm afraid your nearest branch is in the Cayman Islands. Yeah, uh, they should get in time to sweep up the ashes of your memories. Goodbye! <laughs> the solution. <laughs> but I've realised the problem with that bit of material is that Those people don't need to use those things anyway that are paid for by tax as they take their kids to private schools and they go to private hospitals and they live on their private land. As long as tax avoidance is a moral and not legal issue, nothing can be done about it. 
even if that moral issue is the sort of issue that means lots and lots of people are suffering from austerity, while those with a lot of money avoid paying tax towards the systems that need saving them from austerity. And while your Prime Minister insists on tackling with one hand, but is using the other hand to write letters to the EU to make sure it can keep happening, then it's probably not going to end anytime soon. I listened to a Radio 4 programme recently about Norway, where they have full tax transparency. At one point, the reporter went to a business conference and asked all the business representatives there if they minded having this level of uh, intimate knowledge about other people's tax details. No, of course not, said one of them. Tax is the most important contribution you can make to the country. The next person agreed, as did the next. Maybe our Prime Minister should be the one that sets the example of contributing properly to this country. Though, judging by his family history, he'd probably just get someone from the Bahamas to do it instead. And now back to Paul. I I mean, I I wonder as well if part of the reason that people... Uh, as you say, don't think our government are doing, you know, don't expect this from them. Uh, we've, in the in the second IP uh, bill voting, Labour and the SNP completely abstained from voting in it. I mean, do you think that was a sensible thing for them to do? Um, why, why didn't they oppose it or bring up some of the points that you're talking about today? I, I, I think it's a very interesting question. And I was disappointed um, that, that Labour and the SNP abstained, but I wasn't surprised. Um, There's a a very strong feeling we have at the moment that nobody must be seen to be being soft on um, crime and and terror and so on. And and it's somehow, it looks to people as if if you oppose it, then you're working on the side of the the, the terrorists. Now, you saw this very actively um, in the Apple FBI story that Apple were tr- were trying were being portrayed as being as protecting the privacy of a dead terrorist rather than the security of the whole country and and blah 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 blah, um, and I think the the, the Labour Party particularly um, is wary of being seen as being soft, and this has been um, a long term problem for, for Labour. And it's very hard. How can you present yourself as, um, as, it, as being tough without being kind of macho tough, if you see what I mean? Because this is a, it's a pretty macho bill in, in a way. And if you want to be tough, you've got you to um, support the, 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 the police and the intelligence agencies and so on. Um, I think they also had a sense and I, again, I think this is probably real, unrealistic that this was only a certain, a, an early stage, and that they'll have a chance later on to um, to, to properly oppose. And, and, and this was actually actively said by some of the politicians that we're we're going to abstain now, but we're reserving the right to oppose in the third reading. Our changes aren't being done, and this was in um, the the, le- the recent letter from from. Um, Andy Burnham, um, the point when if you don't change these things, then we will oppose. But I think that's also unrealistic because having followed the process, and I was one of the witnesses before the Joint Parliamentary Committee on the Investigatory Powers Bill, they, they said the same again, that there'll be plenty of time for later scrutiny. But actually the most recent one, recent bit of scrutiny, which was supposed to be part of this thing where they said they have plenty of time, they've had one set of witnesses 
and most of whom were actually representative of the either the intelligence agencies or the victims of terrorism. And it's a classic thing. You get a victim of terrorism to come and appear and say, you've got to do this so that you can protect other people so they don't die like my son, daughter, whatever it might be. Mm. It, it's the classic way to make it hard to oppose. Because if you oppose something that the victims support, you are clearly on the side of the terrorists, not the victim which um, it, it's, it's kind of theatrical, really. But the result is people like the Labour, Labour and the SNP don't want to be seen to, to oppose. I think they're quite wrong in this case. I think they should have opposed um, because only by opposing might, would they challenge the basic principles of this bill and get, the, get them to think again. And I, and I think right now all they're going to do is, is, is tweak a few details and the basic principles will remain as they are. I saw Andy Burnham has uh, released a message today, hasn't he, to uh, to the Home Secretary, and I saw yes. that he tweeted he'd got some things right, just about. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, there there were a couple of details that I that I really liked in what he said. Um, putting in the um, when he mentions the overarching criminal offence of deliberate misuse, and this is one of the good bits of the bill that if if. The, the, the authorities use these powers incorrectly, it, they can be prosecuted. But again, I'll, see, I, I'll believe it when I see it actually happen because um, uh, there's certain, there are many, the, 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 the times you get the authorities actually prosecuted are, 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 are minimal. But it includes the sentence this should, that this should relate to both the obtaining of data without due cause and improper use to which obtained data is put. Now, this is a big, big issue which is not really discussed. The, the basic approach adopted by the Vestry Powers Bill is gather as much data as possible and uh, kind of don't worry so much about gathering it, then only care about um, who's allowed to access it and, and under what authority and things like that. Now, that's fundamental misunderstanding the nature of the way that the surveillance system works because it's by gathering data that you create the vulnerability when the data is there it's a, it's there for, for to, to be misused or to be hacked or to be um leaked or whatever it might be sure. and, and this is the first time i've seen from andy from from the labor party an understanding that the obtaining of data matters as well as the um the the using of the data that was just that's just one little little detail um he also, I like the bit where he talks about um, requiring better um, judicial authorization and oversight. But as I, as I said before, I don't, I don't think that's, I think that that can be overplayed as, a, as a, an issue. What's better is to, to limit the powers rather than um, change the oversight of those powers. Sure. So, uh, uh, but it's, oh, go on, sorry. Uh, uh, but, but it's, it, I mean, it, these, these are, better steps from the Labour Party than we've had for, for, for a while because in the past they were much more um, kind of gung-ho about it uh, and, and uh, well I mean anyone who remembers the, the, the particularly the later stages of the, the Tony Blair administration the counter-terror moves the 90 days detention and things like that were very um, authoritarian frankly and it, initially when this bill was first suggested Andy Burnham was kind of right behind Theresa May on this, and he has gradually moved to a position of more of a more critical one. I'm still, I still would like him to go a lot further. I still think this is tweaking the edges rather than rather than getting at the heart of it. But um, it's better than it might have been. <laughs> okay, 
So assuming, well, you said earlier that you think it's going to go through anyway, mostly in the form that it's in. I mean, uh, assuming Labour don't uh, challenge it too much in the third reading, it does go through in the state that it's, you know, or, or almost its current state. Um what should people do? I mean, I, I had a very silly idea that we should make a website called Piss Off Theresa May, you nosy bastard, and we all click on it 600 times a day <laughs> until she gets the message. Um, but is there, I mean, if people are worried about their privacy, is there anything that they can actually do about it? Well, I think one of the one of the really interesting things is going to be watching what the tech industry does in response to this, because I know, know some people who are already working on tools to allow people to avoid um, this the kind of intrusion that's that's going on here now i mean this gives a clue to how the serious serious supposed bad guys will uh, get around it but um if you use your equipment sensibly you're putting yourself at less risk now this isn't just in relation to this this bill this is in relation to, to how you deal with the internet internet generally and um there will be uh there there are, there are moves by each of the technology companies to actually make their their own equipment and their services more secure things like um the iphone and, and the apple fbi case is a is a is a classic in this way apple are actively working in ways that would not just make it, it harder for them to for, for the authorities to get into the phones but actually would make it harder for apple to get into into the the phones and then even if the fbi sues apple apple can actively say you know i'm sorry we just don't we just can't there's no there's no way of way of doing this so as and when the privacy friendly um technology is developed and it is being developed and will continue to the best thing that people can do is start using it and um to support it to help it if if you're given an option take that option Check all your settings and, and things like that. And, and there, there are there are numbers of other things. And, and this is also partly where this the link between the, the corporate stuff and the government stuff comes in. Um, basically, you make your stuff available on Facebook. You're making it available to the authorities as well as to to, to, to Facebook. If you're more careful with how you use Facebook, then you're also more careful in relation to your uh, risks from. Uh, of being mistakenly uh, put into the wrong list by the authorities and of being um, attacked by scammers and, and criminals and so on. But the other thing is, lobby your MP right now. That's the, that's the, the, the thing that, that people should be doing. Check whether your MP has actually paid any attention to what's going on here. Now, the, the, the Labour Party is one thing. Actually, some of the, the best uh, best writing, the best speeches against the, uh, the the bill have come from the conservative party david right. da david davis mp is probably the 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 most uh, actively uh, active opposer of the investigatory powers bill around there so don't assume that whatever you, if you're if you're in a, in a in a tory constituency that you have no chance of changing things actually you do and it, and that's why the, what what people can do right now is to write to their mps say I'm worried about this. Have you done this? And to join one of, one of the, the various um, pressure groups, the Open Rights Group, Privacy International, Liberty, they, they're all actively campaigning in positive ways about this. So, so that's what I would do. I mean, it, it, I mean well, it's what I, it's what I do do. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and pay attention to what's going on as well. 
And if you see something happening, some again a new product, a new a new system, then check out what it, what it's saying. If they're saying this is more secure, yeah, it might be. And the other thing that people need to do, and this is kind of a fundamental, is to be more um, critical in the way they think and think about these things. Don't ever take what 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 the government says at face value. Now. That's not just true about, <laughs> about <laughs> surveillance, yes. um, but it's particularly true about surveillance. Partly, it's not that the, it, it, and I think this is also important, I don't think many of the politicians, maybe not even any of them, are actually insincere about this stuff. I think mostly they simply don't understand. And they're not willing to admit that they don't understand and if you've ever got a letter back from your mp when you've asked a question you'll see very often there are kind of set phrases that they've clearly been fed by mm. the relevant minister that they're just repeating without actually having a having a clue what they're what they're um they're talking about and tell them that say look you know you've got to you've got to learn about this have you spoken to the people from the open rights group or whoever it might be. Have you spoke, if, if you're writing to a Tory MP, have you, have you listened to what David Davis has said? And uh, I think people need to be more willing to challenge the government at, at an individual level. See, if the Labour Party opposes this, if the SNP opposes this, and if enough Tories oppose this, and there's a, a, a kind of core group of Tories who already do, then the government will actually find it hard to get through. And that's part, I mean, they, 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 despite the way they seem to be behaving, they don't actually have a big majority at the moment. Right. And if, we, if you shift a few Tory MPs across, then things get much harder. And um, for that, when they get much harder, that means they've got to start persuading people. And when they have to start persuading people, they actually have to start thinking about it. And that's where supposedly our political um, system um, should work, uh, whether it does. I mean, I, I, I say I, I say all these wonderful ideas about what we can do. I am still pretty cynical and think that actually, in the end, it will probably get through just as just as it is. <laughs> right. But that doesn't mean that doesn't it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And sure. I I think that's generally the case. But I think I think that also brings me on to, a, to 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 another thing that I would say that that I'm less worried than I might be about this because as you said right at the beginning we're not moving to a minority report situation we're moving to a situation where there are some possibilities of it but that frankly nobody nobody's actually good enough to be able to do it our main risks in practice are um we're being put a little bit more at risk from criminals and our bills are likely to go up those are the things that will will happen at a, at a practical level the the bigger risk is actually a longer term one, and it, and I think this is what people find hardest to focus on. That is, if we're kind of establishing as a as normal behaviour that it's okay for governments to monitor everything we do on the internet all the time, then as they do get better at it, then we are at more risk. And what's happening now is kind of a little bit of setting down the the, the, the principles that will then apply potentially for generations i mean we're we're the the law as it stands right now is based on a kind of mishmash of different laws some of which date back as far as as um um the 70s hmm. in the u.s the the fbi were trying to use a bit of law called the all writs act from 1789 
wow. to argue um, against Apple in the in the case. And <laughs> one of the re- one of the reasons they they ran away from the 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 case was because they realised they were going to lose. Partly because that is pretty much absurd, but laws in this field tend to last a long time, while technology in this field tends to move very fast. So it means that the that if the laws are out of sync with the the tech. That that out that being out of sync it gets exaggerated very very fast. So what we what we set as a principle now can have significant um, ramifications in the future, and that's really I mean again I know Andy Burnham put this in in the bill and the Intelligence and Security Committee who are normally very much a, um, a kind of rubber stamp authority com, um, committee they both said we've got to write privacy into this bill from the start properly and and all they actually did was change a couple of words in here and there in in headings um in uh, in response to that they didn't do anything serious about it but actually if we establish that in 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 the bill properly that potentially could have a significant effect in the future but i again i, I it's hard to get people to focus on deep principles rather than um, sure. practical details the practical details uh, the, the the practical detail that may in, in the end scupper this is the cost, and I think that's where things like particularly the internet connection records is going to be into in its biggest um, its biggest mess because they will find I suspect that this is immensely expensive. Now our government doesn't like to spend money at the best of times. I mean, in a, in a, uh, under austerity. Um, public spending is deeply shrunk. So what does that mean? Well, in this case, it means almost certainly that we're going to end up paying. We're, right. uh, uh, we're going to end up paying through our um, bills, our internet bills, our internet service providers, our broadband, whatever, what, however you happen to do it, you'll end up paying for it. And if it's immensely expensive, and it almost certainly will be, you might end up paying really quite a lot. Right now, access to the internet is fairly cheap. We don't, we don't really, most people don't really worry that much about it. But, but if, it, if the price goes up, they will start to worry about it. And, and, and I think that may be more powerful than principles. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be. I'm pretty sure that if, uh, if internet bills go up, more people will be concerned and complain about this than pretty much anything else. Um, but that's so, fantastic advice. I think if, if in general if people could be more cynical, if they could stop doing such personal Facebook updates, which I'd like myself anyway to stop plaguing my wall with, uh, and if they could go through and do their iPhone updates, no matter how long it takes, uh, all these things are incredibly important. Can, can, can I add one other little bit of politics. Of course, yeah, of course. Um, one of the, 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 the interesting things here is how uh, this the, our lovely European Union status comes in here. And frankly, privacy advocates largely are um, in favour of staying in the European Union because, and this actually links back to some of the stuff you talked about right at the beginning, um, if we leave all this to the British government, we're in deep trouble. They're much more. They're much more interested in intruding in our private lives than than um, than the rest of Europe. Our main protection from um, excessive government surveillance has come through the European Union. It's been the, the Court of Justice of the European Union that has protected us from the most intrusive bits of 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 law that have been largely driven by by the UK. So, again. I, I'm I, I, I'm instinctively pro-European in 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 many ways, but I'm particularly pro-European about this. The, it, if we leave the European Union, 
our level of protection against government surveillance may go down significantly. So, basically, stop watching James Bond and update your phone. Solid advice, I think. Huge, huge thanks to Paul uh, for letting me interview him. You can find him on Twitter at UK. That's P-A-U-L-B-E-R-N-A-L-U-K. And his excellent and very in-depth blog is at paulburnell.wordpress.com. As I say every week, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject or issue you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please, please let me know and I will do my best to get them. That sounds quite threatening, doesn't it? I don't mean like get them like, I mean, get in touch with them. Unless you really want me to get them, then, you know, I'm dedicated to you guys. It's the question of the week. It's not a jingle. I just thought I'd sing it. Uh, This week, rather oddly and out of nowhere, Danny DeVito, yeah, that one, you know him, uh, endorsed Jeremy Corbyn. He said he was a big fan of him and he thought he'd make a much better leader for Britain than David Cameron. Quite how someone of DeVito's size can be a big fan of anything is completely beyond me. But anyway, I asked our Twitter and Facebook followers to send me any other celebrity endorsements of politicians that they'd like to see. Ethan Lawrence said, Tom Cruise for Jacob Rees-Mogg. You would have to be an insane hyper-religious zealot to truly understand what he's getting at. Yes, I agree with that, Ethan. I think that would work. Uh, At Princess of VP on Twitter said January Jones for Theresa May, which I think that's quite a good one, uh, Princess of VP. Um, I mean, I guess January Jones also spends quite a lot of time dealing with overpaid PR men. Uh, I've had two here that are the same, two that are about supporting Nigel Farage. Uh, at Fluff Logic reckons Chubby Brown could support him. Uh, at Wolfie Smith reckons Mel Gibson could endorse him. That's uh, <laughs> nice. Um, at Hello Dave, this is lovely. He says, well, Richard Branson presumably already endorses Eric Pickles. Well done, sir. Small round of applause for you. Um, Gary Hemming on Twitter, he said, uh, Julian Clary for Donald Trump. Which, I mean, judging by Donald Trump's views on equal marriage, I'm guessing he wouldn't feel right about that. It would be perfect. Uh, And at Chris Brosnan um, on Twitter, he says, I'm Barry Scott and I vote UKIP. Bang! And the EU is gone. Well, I I like that, Chris. Uh, I mean, someone needs to clean up that party. Why not Barry Scott? Uh, please do follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Parpolbro and we'll be sending out weekly questions uh, for you to answer and I'll read them out on the podcast if they tickle me fancy. It's the Partly Big Society. Thanks to everyone who took part in last week's Partly Big Society. Uh, I realised that the major flaw in the plan was that Dan Thomas, the councillor and the person who's being running mate for Zach Goldsmith in the London mayor election, he doesn't tweet very much, Ah, which is a little bit of a problem considering I've told us to tweet him and throw him off. Uh, Still, I have told him to shh a few times on Twitter and so have some of you lot, so that is brilliant and keep it up and hopefully, maybe as it gets nearer to the mayoral campaign, he'll tweet a little bit more and we can annoy him a little bit more. We'll just keep trying. Uh, This week's Partly Big Society comes from Nigel Herwin, who sent me the first ever email for this podcast, which is very exciting. Well done, Nigel. Uh, And Nigel said... Here's a suggestion for a partly big society caper. Why don't we send used or spare fashion magazines and catalogues to Samantha Cameron at 10 Downing Street? This will hopefully give her ideas of what to wear rather than spending £53,000 of taxpayers' money on someone helping her pick out dresses. 
Uh, I think that is a brilliant idea, Nigel. Uh, I don't know if you heard that news story, but Samantha Cameron now has a fashion advisor who she's paying £53,000 a year for uh, in order to work out what to wear, uh, which is bizarre when onesies exist and she could probably just traipse around in one of those. Uh, so I think... Nigel's idea is absolutely brilliant uh, and I've checked it out you can send posts to number 10 Downing Street though it will probably get vetted for any dangerous things or any threats anything like that but I think if we're all just sending Samantha Cameron clothes magazines they might well get to her so uh, again no need for any swears or nasty stuff maybe just throw in a note about how crazy it is that someone needs £53,000 a year for fashion advice um, and that she should probably help fight austerity with that money instead and you know just wear some Bermuda shorts and maybe you can circle or cut out pics of your clothing suggestions um, don't spend any money on this maybe you know get those ones that are free in magazines or other bits and pieces do people still buy magazines anymore I don't know um, and I'm going to do one this week and I will send it out and stick twi- uh, pictures on Twitter and Facebook and all that um, and if you send your pictures of them to me as well uh, I will post them up and the address to send them all to is quite obviously 10 Downing Street London SW1A 2AA and address them to Samantha Cameron and uh, hopefully she'll get them message and get rid of that fashion advisor any time now before donning some lovely Primani. And that's the end of this week's show. Over the next few weeks, depending on stories, I'm going to try to focus in uh, more on the upcoming local and London mayoral elections, as well as the ever-looming EU referendum. Uh, if you do enjoy the show, please do tell everyone ever, ever. Or, as we've heard from our chat with Paul Burnell, uh, maybe just click on the website enough, and I may gain the entire MI5 as listeners within a matter of weeks. Um, but seriously, word of mouth is very, very useful podcasts indeed, as are reviews on iTunes if you fancy giving us one, and then giving us a review. Woo! And you can follow us on Twitter at Parpolbro, uh, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Parpolbro. And you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com with your thoughts, feelings, or perhaps smells about the show. Actually, maybe not smells. This week's show was brought to you by nothing. There's no numbers there. I'm not benefiting from any numbers. Okay, 30,000, but it was all taxed properly. Okay, another 200,000 as well, but I've done nothing wrong, all right? Oh, what a terrible week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.